Welcome, welcome everyone to another episode of the Sales Catalyst Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barmapov, and today I have a very special guest with me, Mr. Simon Gerstler from Pipe Global CEO and founder. Thank you for coming on to the show, Simon. Absolute pleasure. Great to join you, Ari. Likewise. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, originally from the UK, so I was born in London, moved to Israel about 19 years ago now, background in sales, so um, been in technology sales since the year 2000s, uh, on the co-founding team of a couple of companies, tech companies that end up being acquired. And subsequent to that, uh, along with Robert Curtis, who I worked with in my previous startup, we founded Pipe Global and really just helped companies with their sales and marketing strategy, using our knowledge gleaned over the past 20 plus years and helped them on their way. I really, really love that because I've I've been saying for a while now that sales is in the roughest place that it has been pretty much in the history of sales right now. Yeah, not in a great place for sure. And I think a lot of that comes down to how easy it was for salespeople to make sales and to do their job, I'd say about four or five years ago. And now that money's becoming a lot harder to come by when it comes to funding, when it comes to getting people to open their wallets, people really have to refine their craft. And the the salespeople that were just coasting before find themselves not being able to keep up. Yeah, well, it's changing so fast as well, the way people are making decisions, how many layers they are. And in this market, people haven't seen a downturn where you have to sell based on ROI and really show the value. So the traditional coasting maybe two, three years ago on features, that's not working. And some salespeople are very slow and some companies are very slow to pick up on that and adjust accordingly. For sure. And we see some people, some companies doing a lot of restructuring, letting go some of their sales teams, rehiring some of their other sales teams, and they're getting a lot of slack from it. But on playing devil's advocate, I can see why they're doing that with the current market, because you need to have the right talent in place in order to succeed today. Correct. It's harder than ever to sell, as you say, more competition. A lot of tech companies were selling to tech companies. So that whole area has dried up as well. So it's particularly challenging. And yeah, and some companies have underinvested in training their salespeople. So they onboarded them very quickly when they just wanted to get, you know, people sit, to sit down and carry on um, a sales process that was existing already, but they didn't really give them the tr- the tools and the tricks and the hacks in order to develop a, as really well-trained salespeople. That's exactly it. It's like, come in, the onboarding was this is our tech stack and here's our script. Yeah. Here's a phone book. Go call people. Correct. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, it might, it might have worked. Three, it was working for some companies two or three years ago and there was less pressure on the, on the CAC, reducing the customer acquisition costs. So you can maybe almost semi-excuse it, but now you've got to be, be quick to pivot and adjust to the new reality today. Exactly. When it comes to sales organizations, specifically SaaS or tech organizations, I find that focusing on the product is not the way to go. Like you were saying, features and such. The part that really moves the needle is having a very deep, deep understanding of the person you're talking to on the other end of the phone. Yeah. Who's the persona you're talking to? What does their day look like? What really are problems that are costing their department money? What do you Correct. think? And 
Yeah, I think that's right. And too many people aren't, some of the companies we see, we see a variety of quality of salespeople. And again, some salespeople are almost like robotic. They go onto the call assuming that they know what the challenges are. And they start off with almost that arrogance saying, I know that you're this job title, so this is going to be your problem. Hey, presto, this is our solution. No attempt to, to ask the right questions, to show interest. And not everyone's the same and not everyone handles challenges the same as well. Even if people like to put personas into boxes, you've got to go onto every call and realize that it's a fresh call and the person might have a very different perspective. I really love that. I really love that. And I was scrolling through LinkedIn the other day and a person, and I forget their name off the top of my head, said that they were calling into the uh, CTO persona and the person that they called had just been downsized and let go. And instead of yeah. just getting off the call with them, they had a really fantastic, great conversation about their network, some other people they could maybe get them in touch with. And that's a perfect example of really satisfying and serving your market and your target audience, as opposed to going in with a preconceived notion in your head of what you want to do and just being really in one lane exactly yeah um providing providing value in each interaction and and it could be an interaction that's not in your own selfish interest which is to sell a product so um what goes around comes around and if you send good karma someone's way i I really believe it comes back to you in some way shape or form in the future i agree when that person gets a new job which eventually they will who's the the first person that they're going to call yeah Probably their spouse saying that they got a new job <laughs> directly yeah. after that. Directly after the next one, the next one, number two on, on the list. There you go. There you go. And it, it poses a really interesting question for startups and how they develop and decide how they're going to go to market. Because yeah. I've noticed this with the people that I've spoken with is that when a company has product-led founders, they're seeing some initial success in the market to their product, they will go one of two routes. First route, hire a VP of sales to go and build out their entire playbook and everything for them. And the other route is hire a BDR or a dial monkey to go and build everything out and go to market and make all the calls. And both of those routes have one very key flaw in it. And it's that they're not doing the job that the other person is doing in order to be successful. The BDR or the AE doesn't have the experience to build out their entire process from scratch. And a proper VP of sales doesn't want to dial and doesn't want a cold call. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, What have you been seeing on your end? I've been seeing... um... Going over the last three, four years where we've worked with a lot of companies, I've seen a lot of companies bring in that VP sales, even CRO, whatever job title, they give them way too early. Mm-hmm. And they're looking at on the industry who might have worked in cybersecurity before and had a uh, on paper done very well. But it could be the company had a great product and pretty much anyone who's got any sales experience could have led the company to those growth milestones. So that's often a mistake. They just hire someone from the industry who's been at a company and need to dig much deeper to find out if they're able to do that. And secondly, how prepared are they to get their hands dirty? And as we know, 
both of us from working with CEOs. CEOs, generally, they're very happy to do the first 20, 30, 40 sales. They're prepared to get their hands dirty, but I've then seen them bring in VP sales who are saying, no, 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 I'm not doing that call or well, that's that's uh, too small a company for me to get involved with. And a lot of these relationships end very quickly. The average tenure is crazy low for VP sales in the early stages of a company. And they can't afford that. Correct. They, they literally can't afford that, especially now to waste that kind of money, you know, 150000 dollars $300,000 in a salary for a senior tenured person to come in who's not even going to bring in their first 100 customers. Yeah. That, that's why I think um, myself and yourself have seen a real niche in the market where not just Pipe Global, et cetera, but other companies are providing these outsourced services. It could be three, four hours a week. They're not coming in with any preconceptions that they're going to sell themselves, but they're going to help set up that playbook, that process, and maybe bring in someone that they know in a BDR, AE role and someone they've worked with before or they can recommend. And that's often a good route to go to market as well. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You're getting the best of both worlds in this place. You're having someone senior, educated, knowledgeable, who is building out that process and playbook for you and then giving that AE or BDR kind of like a starting point of where to go from there, where they can build up to and build out from there and they can grow it from there. Yeah. I find that the most successful first AE hires are the ones that have a lot of cold calling experience and are have no problem getting on the call and making some cold calls, yep. have succeeded in the AE role and are closers initially as well. So they can take full cycle, full sales cycle from start to close, but then also have a lot of leadership qualities within them as well that you know you can develop, promote, and improve on to then build out and lead a sales team to replicate their success that they're initially seeing with their first set of customers. Now, that's a great point, Ari. If anything, go for someone slightly more junior that hasn't mm-hmm. got 10 years experience, hasn't worked in three companies in the VP sales role. They've got something to prove anyway, and that those tend to be the more successful hires, and sometimes they end up in that VP sales chair. The other thing I've seen that that's sometimes a bit of a red flag and a warning sign is CEOs who've maybe made those 10, 15, 20 sales at the beginning and get a little bit carried away because some of those sales are from very, very warm introductions mm-hmm. from their personal network, from the VC network. And also they're traditionally selling to companies who don't care if there's not hundred customers already there on the books. So they're happy to take the risk. There are certain companies that I know within the Israeli tech scene, there's, certain, there's a handful of companies that are very prepared to be that pilot customer. And they're prepared to take the risk on the technology, give the feedback, get a good price, maybe locked in for a few years. But that doesn't mean having done 10, 15, 20 of those sales, that there's a repeatable sales process that can be followed because those are unusual sales. That's a very, very good point. And even something that I didn't even consider before and something that I've seen with a couple of the clients that I'm working with is that those initial sales came off the backs of their networks. It it did not come off the backs of a good sales process and a well-run Uh, sales presentation it it came off the backs of reputation and network yeah and that's a danger as i said that's a danger and i've I've seen companies get a little bit carried away a little bit ahead of themselves whether whereas they might need to prove that they can go outbound to someone that's never heard of the company name knows nothing about it that's really um where you see companies 
fail, not fail because they haven't um, burnt through their cash necessarily straight away, but they're certainly going in the wrong direction. Um, and that, as you know, once you start going in the wrong direction, it's very hard to switch course and steer the ship in the right course. Absolutely. So we've been talking very conceptually. Let's let's get down to brass tacks that you have a founder, you have a tech founder that they're yeah. looking to build a go-to-market strategy. They don't want to hire you. And they're, they're too good for that, right? Yeah. How are they going to do it themselves? How, what is the first step that they need to do in order to build out their go-to-market strategy, their ICP, and determine their TAM? What, what's a nice, neat little exercise that they can do on their own? Um, well, they, they need to just have a lot of conversations, even if those conversations aren't going to end up in sales. So don't be scared to have a conversation where you're almost saying, hey, we, we've got a new product. We're excited about it. We've raised some money. We've got some initial traction your um, our typical ICP. Now, I'm not expecting you to necessarily buy the product, but I would love to get your feedback, be it positive or negative. And that, that's something that doesn't always happen, but it's really going to, the knowledge you gain from that is going to be huge because you don't always hear from clients that don't move ahead why they're not moving ahead. So if you ask for that honesty and transparency, that's a really good starting point. And I think also the danger is not to think that you're going to nail down everything, the ICP, the product, the market, the company size in the first six months. You're not. Ever-changing. It's evolving. Exactly. Any company that's selling in the same way as they were in July 2022 is probably selling with one hand tied behind their back. You've got to be evolving, changing, iterating as you're getting feedback from the market. So it's very rare that you see a company that hasn't pivoted somewhat either in the product itself, a very big pivot, or certainly in terms of decision maker or the people that they should be pitching to, which they didn't realize when they first went to market. Exactly. And I love bringing up Blockbuster and Netflix because it's such an amazing, incredible example. It applies to so many different facets and that it applies perfectly, absolutely perfectly to this example. Blockbuster refused to change. Netflix was the future. Could have bought them at a very cheap price. They didn't. One of the companies is still around today. The other one is dead in the water and has Netflix comedy specials made about them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, you know, move too slowly at your own peril. Um, That's what I say. So, yeah. So in terms of the way companies need to nail that product market fit, there is this pressure to get the playbook perfect straight away. And and you and I know that that's never going to happen anyway. You've got to get a good enough playbook or good enough strategy at the beginning. You've got to test it and you've got then got to use data to really analyze where to tweak and improve in that next phase of sales. Exactly. And you're doing the hard work for that VP sales anyway. You're preparing the groundwork. The VP sales isn't coming in completely fresh and looking at it from day one. They've, they've seen some of the mistakes, some of the pivots, some of the twists and turns, which is going to make them much more effective in in their role as well. Exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, a VP of sales is a leadership role. They have to have someone to lead. Yeah. In innately, that's that's what their responsibility is. And if there is no one to lead, then yeah, they don't have a role. Yeah. But going back to what you were saying about speaking with your customers, your potential customers, your ICP, I absolutely that is such a perfect, perfect way for a founder to get their feet wet, get a really good gauge on product market fit and where they need to change things and to have conversations, not for the sake of sales, but for the sake of education and knowledge. 
Yeah. Um, very important, but not always done. It's, you know, um, companies need to look at how other competitors in their market have started as well. Um, everyone seems to take a tunnel vision approach and say, right, I'm coming in, I've got this new product, I'm the new game in town, and we're going to do it in a very different way. But sometimes learn from mistakes of competitors, other companies in that space or a similar space, and make it more effective what you're doing by learning from what others have done in the past that hasn't worked. Exactly. And I think this call and, and this podcast conversation we're having is a testament to this next point. There is enough work for everybody. There yeah. is enough room in the market. There's very rarely a situation where you come into play where there's simply not enough work for more th- for another player to enter the game. There are you take a look at all of the startups across the entire world. And if you and I put out twice of our bandwidth, we wouldn't even be coming 1% of the total amount of market share. Yeah. So why, why come to your competitor with animosity? Why not come and grow together and be better together and learn more so you can better serve your customer better? That's correct. Um, I've always been a big advocate of having very warm, open relationships with competitors, never slating them because that always comes back to haunt you. In fact, um, the previous company, the first company that I co-founded, we were eventually acquired um, because the person who was working in a competitor website in the beginning, we were in the legal recruitment space, which is tired, which is a very tight space, not many entrants in it. Um, the CEO of the company used to regularly um, wine and dine like, a couple of times a year, and it would be not, nothing too much about um, the companies themselves and delving into things that they could disclose to each other. And eventually... And this gentleman um, in the competitor company ended up being the head of the M&A at the company that acquired us. And it was the warmth of that relationship, which, which at that time had no agenda. It was impossible to predict the twists and turns it would take. That friendly relationship maybe made a difference between being acquired and not being acquired. Who knows? Can you imagine today if the head of Apple and the head of Microsoft are seen whining and dining every month? Yeah. Can you imagine the impact that it would make on people and the things that people would say? Yeah, that's right. Oh, it's funny. You know, when you get to a certain point, it just, it doesn't quite work like that. But nobody, basically nobody gets to that. Yeah. That you can't have a warm relationship. And I'm sure that behind closed doors, they still do have conversations and talk. Oh, without a doubt, that just probably doesn't play out well to shareholders in the general market. But yeah, without a doubt, they're meeting in discrete forums to share things that are mutually beneficial. So the next topic that I'd like to talk about and bring up is more specific around the rep development and training. One of the things that you said earlier was that reps don't get enough development and they don't get enough nurturing at organizations in order to be successful. In your mind, what does a good enablement strategy look like for a startup to be able to enable their team to be the best that they can be? Um, I, mean, I think I think it does evolve over time, and it depends a lot in terms of the stage that the company's at. But it goes back to documentation and sharing, and not um, encouraging like a, a, an unhealthy competitive attitudes. I mean, I've been in companies where the reps have almost been at loggerheads and almost trying to sabotage each other's deals and they're not working together yeah yeah it doesn't work well over time and it comes back to haunt you eventually as a company so to have that open 
um, sh sharing because it's in everyone's benefit to see. Oh, I heard I overheard you on that call just now. It sounded like whatever you said went pretty well. What was that line again? I wouldn't mind using that myself. And that is the how you start to evolve that shared playbook. But you need to start doing it from day one with those original Zoom calls that probably don't go well, where you're missing deals. I mean, any company that's closing at the same ratio again, first six months, twelve months, and two years is doing something very badly wrong because that, that closing ratio should improve all the time. But over at the beginning, you're going to be making mistakes. So learn from the mistakes, learn from what's working well, and have this open attitude where everyone's able to listen to each other's calls, ask each other questions. Um, I mean, some companies that are bigger companies, some enterprise companies I've worked with, they've almost wanted everything to go through the sales leadership. And they disincentivize people from speaking to each other. Again, that's not the right way to do it. No. Absolutely not. One point or quote that I've heard often is that never be the smartest person in the room. Because if yeah. you're the smartest person in the room, then you're never going to learn anything. I think with right. sales reps, that plays a very, very important part in their development of not being the smartest or the best sales rep in the room. Because when you're around naturally, when you're around other people that have higher skills than you are better than you, you are just organically, Darwinianly speaking, going to improve. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it has made it harder with the whole remote working and some companies have got the sales teams spread out, um, all working at home, not as easy. Again, you've got the shared repositories and people can access information very easily today and there's various tools and products on the market. But ultimately, where I've learned the best is being in a, almost like a boiler room with everyone else and hearing, seeing chatting debriefing taking calls apart together and you don't get that as much it's impossible to when you've got seven or eight people all working at home that's exactly it and that's that's a part that i hadn't considered quite as much on the way that work from home has affected group learning but i have at the same time thought about it in the sense of looking at in-person events versus remote events and how yep. people are having a, a appetite for wanting more and more in-person events now. And I think that plays a huge part. In it. Yeah. Um, I, I agree on that. The in-person events uh, have bounced back with a vengeance. I mean, people are, um, almost wrote them off. I remember like one of the companies I was advising must've been a couple of years ago. They did, they signed up to a virtual event against my my sort of better judgment and advice. And it was just complete, complete waste of money. It was like trying to replicate, which you can't do through technology, in my view anyway. And it just didn't work to any way, shape or form. And people were going to knock on the door to our room or whatever. But yeah, it certainly wasn't anywhere near replicating real life events. No, exactly. I saw on your LinkedIn that you've done quite a few of those in-person events and trainings and, and workshops recently. Yeah. Did you do any that were remote and how did you find that, that disparity between the two and uh, any improvements that happened when you went back to in-person? Look, during COVID, I did a lot of um, remote training and I was working with clients in, in Dubai, the U S the UK. So naturally, even, even post COVID, I would be doing it on, uh, online um, I think, first of all, you can't really see if someone's engaged. 
So it's much easier to scan um, a small workshop and room and see who's engaged and either call out or involve people that maybe need to be in included more. Much harder to see that when someone might be checking their emails at the same time as listening to um, your, your sales workshop as well. So it's, it's just harder to gauge. And obviously you're not united as a group when you've got everyone um, just in a little box in the window. So when we came back to those real in-person events, now I used some of the learnings from that to hopefully make those workshops more effective in terms of in including everyone. That's amazing. And I'm pretty sure that the people who are at those in-person events really appreciated it, really loved it, and had a fantastic and amazing time. I hope so. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that wraps up our episode of the Sales Catalyst podcast. Simon, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way that they'd be able to reach you? So you can look me up on LinkedIn. Um, Simon Gersler, G-E-R-S-T-L-E-R. -E -E I'm the only Simon Gersler on LinkedIn, so they'll find me pretty easily there. Uh, and they can also look us up on our, our website, pipe.global. That's awesome. You heard them, people. If you'd like to work with Simon or you'd like to just engage in some great conversations on LinkedIn, Simon's very active and always willing to have a conversation with people. Check them out over there. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Write a review down below if you like the podcast. And we will see you next time on the Sales Catalyst podcast. Take care, everyone.